gave you the priceless gift of the right words at the right time. The right words at the right time. Think back when that occurred. Timely and true words, as you're thinking about that, they can, they can dig us out of the rubble of guilt, can't they? They can heal wounds. They can be a map when we are lost. Timely and true words serve us, and they serve God's purposes. I can recall a time of wrestling with what it really meant to be a man. Um, I was hungry to know what, what biblical masculinity really looked like in practice, a lot of theories and questions, and it was creating a lot of unrest in me and an uncle I respected a lot, uh, my uncle Rick, uh, who I didn't see very often, was in town. So I struck up a conversation with him about it, thinking maybe he knew a few more things than I did since he was more than twice my age. And as he listened to this struggling, immature young man, uh, he did so late into the night. I think he had a really long drive the next day, even. Uh, But I can honestly, um, I I can't remember a lot of what we specifically talked about uh, on that time, but I remember leaving that conversation feeling a lot less alone than when I started. And that was a priceless gift of timely and true words to me. Can you imagine how popular and sought out a person would be if They could always say the right thing in the right way at the right time and for the right reason. That person would have a lot of friends on Facebook, I'm sure. Um, But imagine a perfect steward of their speech. They could always tailor their words and their words were worshipful and useful and helpful. And I think this is one one of the main reasons why Jesus was just always so sought after and so popular, and there were crowds always around him. Our God speaks. He speaks and creates. He created the universe with his words. He is personal, and he relates to creation. And that's no small claim, right? Some people have been institutionalized for believing this kind of thing in a, in a kind of an off way. But that's an astounding claim that that God actually speaks to us because we as human beings are so desperate to hear the voice of God. If you think of all the big questions that you've asked in your life, who am I and what am I doing here and how do I find joy and what is my purpose in life and you just yell those into the sky, imagine getting an answer back on those questions. Thinking how significantly that would change your life. We are desperate, whether we acknowledge it or not, to hear the voice of God. And in our desperation, God speaks. But how does he speak? How does he reveal his will? How does this work? When God speaks, he times and aims his words according to his grace. When God speaks, he times and aims his words according to his grace. We're going to continue our study in God's word in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and just a little bit into chapter 4. If you remember, God is preparing Israel for the crowning of her eventual king. This barren couple are given this child that they commit to this priestly ministry that's happening at Shiloh. And the priest at the time, though, and especially his sons, uh, they are 
uh, lacking in a word. Um, and so God has scheduled to replace them, and that's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Why don't we stand, if you're physically able, out of reverence for God's word as we read 1 Samuel chapter 3 into the very first phrase of chapter 4. Here's what God's word says. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You can be seated. This morning we are going to see that God times and aims his gracious word. A look, quick look at our outline. We're going to see a fading voice or hear a fading voice. Number two, an unfamiliar voice. Number three, the Lord said to Samuel and then a voice restored. And then we'll talk about what this means and the implications of it. So first, a fading voice in the verse three verses there. So, you know, in, in Samuel, we've uh, bounced back and forth between the story of really Samuel's righteous parents 
and the story of this passive priest and his worthless sons. It's really been a story of decline and incline. On the incline, heading upwards, is this Samuel character, right? His parents, they've committed him to the Lord's purposes. He's growing in stature and age. He's described uh, in chapter 3 in the very first verse as a young man. He's growing out of those priestly garments that his mom makes for him every year, right? Samuel is, he's on the incline. He he's, seems to be moving up and, and towards the purposes that the Lord has appointed him for. But on the decline is this guy Eli and his out-of-control sons, in the last week, a mysterious man of God appeared uh, in the chapter to deliver the bad news that his influence was going to end. We're left with this image of, of uh, Eli's descendants begging for food from the descendants of this faithful, faithful priest that God was going to raise up. And he's described as very old in chapter 2, 22. He seems to care more about upsetting his sons than he does uh, the integrity and the name of, of God and his fame. And so as this shows us that as, as Samuel is on the incline and as Eli is on the decline, eventually these two things, they're going to intersect at some point. They're going to meet up and there's going to be a transition that happens. But how is that going to work? And, and how is that God going to work the timing out? We read in verse 7 of chapter 3 that Samuel doesn't even know the Lord yet. hasn't really experienced him or heard him or know him. So how, how are Eli and his sons going to exit stage left, and how is Samuel going to come on the scene? And then we also find out, tragically in verse 1, that there is a consequence of Eli's um, uh, terrible priest, priestly ministry. One of the consequences is that the word of the Lord, it says, is rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This is the problem of our text. Every good story has a dilemma, has a problem, has an issue that needs resolution. And this is the problem in chapter 3. The word of the Lord is rare in, amongst God's people. Did you notice how the author kind of even supports this with verses 2 and 3, this, this, uh, this undesirable situation where it's the sight of this old priest, his, his eyesight is fading. He's living in his own residence kind of off on his own while his eyesight dims. And at the same time, there is Samuel lying near the, the very presence of God, you could say, where God manifests his presence with the ark in the tent of meeting, where, where God's people are to be. And so we see even in that image, this incline and decline, the lamps around the perimeter that were lit of the tent of meeting were about to be extinguished because the dawn was about to break. These details are meant to add to this picture of the sense that God's voice was fading almost beyond recognition. This desperate sense. A light is flickering, it's nearly out. You think, well, why, why is that such a big deal, right? Why is, why is that such a dilemma? Well, one of the ways that God consistently brings judgment on his people is by his withdrawal. The withdrawal of his voice, the withdrawal of his restraining influence over the, the civil society. Withdraw over his revelation of the truth. So that being separated from God is characterized by darkness. Because as God withdraws, that light dims. And that's what's happening in this text. 
You see, God's actions are oftentimes synonymous with his words. He speaks creation into being. When he promises Abram things, we see that uh, fulfilling itself in a covenant and, and in actions. When he threatens Pharaoh through Moses, that leads to the deliverance. See, his voice guides and protects and it leads and it comforts and it saves and it redeems. And if God's voice is not amongst God's people, that's disaster. That's a big deal. Imagine the lamp of God going out as a Christian to to not know what the voice of the Lord is, to not know what he desires. In Psalm 28, verse 1, the psalmist says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent, I become like those who go down to the pit. See, the very worst thing that you can imagine is the silence and the separation from God. That's the very worst thing. And that's why this is such a problem. But then we see in the second an unfamiliar voice in verses 4 to 7, right? Right at that time, God speaks. He calls out to Samuel. He, he addresses him. And this is great news, except for the fact that Samuel has no idea who is talking to him. You think, well, this is great, right? This is at least progress. It's, I don't think so. I think it's actually meant to, to, for the reader to feel like it's, it's worse, It happens twice, right? He speaks to him. He goes to Eli. Eli seems to kind of be more annoyed the second time when he says, my son. I'm not sure how the tone of that came across. And uh, I did not call my son. Lie down again. I don't know. But we find this, this shocking statement after two trial runs in verse 7 that now it says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is amazing, right? This child's been dedicated to the priestly ministry of God's people. He doesn't even know God's voice. That's how rare the word of God was. That even someone as committed and dedicated to what God desired wouldn't hear him. I think this is actually worse because it's one thing for God's people to be in the dark if God is remaining silent. But it's quite another if God is speaking and his own people can't even translate what he's saying. That speaks to the distance of their hearts to him. You see, God is continually speaking in his creation. He's speaking through creation in a way. He's, he's speaking through his word, through his church, by his spirit. God is not and has not ever been distant in this kind of final and permanent way. God doesn't have a speech impediment. Human beings have a hearing problem. Okay? That's where the, the, the fault lies. And we see that here in 1 Samuel 3. And so the, the author, I think, is causing us to answer, ask the question, oh, is it, are they going to get this close to hearing the voice of God and having his voice restored and have it not work? Will God continually call out to his people even when they can't understand that he's, he's the one talking? And so the tension, I think, gets worse until it's resolved in verses 8 through 14. And ironically enough, it's Eli who has the awareness to translate what's going on here. This is the third section, the Lord said to Samuel. In verse 8, it says, Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Eli had experienced grace and measure, it seems, his His sons may have walked all over him, but he's tuned in enough, at least in this situation, to recognize 
What's going on? And so he says, well, when he says this, you say that. It sets him up. And so we see in verse 8, there's almost a ramped up sense of God's presence when it says, and the Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he arose and went to Eli. Uh, sorry, in verse 10, in this final time after he set up, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, and he says his name twice. It's like the Lord knows this is the one that's going to get through. Almost as if he meant for Eli to be the conduit to know that he was going to be speaking to Samuel about something. Because Eli is going to hear that there is this finality to the judgment that he's already heard earlier in chapters 1 and 2. So the Lord repeats his name, which is, he's, he had to do with Abraham and Jacob and Moses, and it's like kind of this special sense in which he's getting his attention. And finally, the words come that the Lord spoke to Samuel, or then the Lord said to Samuel. And now we have direct communication. Now, what does he say to Samuel? He says what he has said before, that Eli is going to get the door. And we're not sure how much of that Samuel knows in advance. And so now he's brought into the loop if he's not yet there. He says that he's going to tell him something that will make people's ears tingle. Which is not this, it gives me goosebumps or there's this juicy bit of gossip kind of sense. Whenever people's ears would tingle when they heard news in the, in the Old Testament in particular, it meant that it was a response to how disastrous the judgment was. You could kind of, equivalent might be freaked out, might be a better, kind of the way we would use that. So that's what he means. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be a kind of disaster that is going to make your ears tingle. And what God does is he essentially doubles down on his plan. He says, Eli continues to refuse to restrain his sons. And so God is going to act. God is going to act in a fatherly way that Eli has failed to do. See, the problem with what Eli has been doing is he's lying to his sons about what the world is like. He's acting as if the glory of God isn't the, the thing that's over all creation as a purpose. He's lying to them about that. He's lying to them by acting like they weren't born into a world of authority when they were. There's right, there's wrong, there's boundaries. Eli's acting as if these sons won't have to answer to God in judgment when they will. See, Eli's been lying to his sons about what the world is like and what God is like. And so God is going to step in and, and do something and say something and act in a fatherly way. See, true discipline is loving. True discipline is disaster prevention is what it is. And God disciplines us in this way. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, that's the whole purpose of disaster prevention that Eli was unwilling to do with his sons. That God is now going to step in and bring discipline. And so that's what he essentially tells Samuel. There's not going to be atonement provided for this idolatry. There's no undoing this. And Eli seems to kind of lack of a repentant heart about these things. It's hard to know what his response in verse 18 really means when he says, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. You could read that as being a faithful statement, and yet 
There would be times that, that David and others would hear of, of the judgment that God is going to bring about for their sin, and they would, they would be grieved by it, and they'd be repentant for it. And it's just strangely absent in, this, in Eli's response. So essentially, there is no atonement. There is no sacrifice. This is happening, Eli. Samuel, you need to know this. And before you dismiss this unforgivable idea as an Old Testament thing that now in the New Covenant we don't have to worry about, for those who persist in sin, who continue walking with hardened hearts perpetually, there will not be forgiveness for those people. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, in the same way that these sons were blaspheming God and receiving the judgment of God, we can, we can blaspheme as well, or we can sin in this deliberate sense, an unregenerate sense, where it's just... There's no repentance, there's no sign of spiritual life, and as that continues to go downhill, there's this uh, expectation of judgment in that setting. So that's what's going on, that's what he says to Samuel, that's, that's kind of an interesting day one as a prophet, you know, first thing you're supposed to do. And so this last part where the, the voice of the Lord is restored and shared, Samuel wakes up the next morning and has to face, what do I do with this message? Right? He's like a rookie prophet, and here he's got this hard thing to say. One writer says, Samuel's first message as a prophet is the doom of his teacher. It's kind of a, I guess, a, a healthy start to the life as a prophet, right? Kind of get used to, to facing these things and to saying these kinds of things. So Samuel's now going to share what this message was, and he first shares with Eli. He gets up. Eli is very curious what God is saying. But you can tell that Eli kind of knows already what, what type of message he received. Because you hear the paranoia in his question uh, when he says, Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me, like Samuel, you're not getting out of this. You've got to tell me everything he said. And so in light of that curse, Samuel spills, his, spills the bad news again to Eli. But then the, the, the voice gets shared even further than that. And, and this is what the whole point of this text is. Do you remember where we started from in verse 1? Where the voice of the Lord was rare. So rare that a person committed to priestly ministry did not recognize God's voice when he spoke. That's how rare it was. And look where things end up. This is amazing how God has acted in this scenario and amongst his people in verse 19 and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord and the word of Samuel came to all Israel wow what a transformation, right? All of Israel acknowledges that Samuel is the Lord's prophet. The Lord continues to reveal his word at Shiloh. So much so, his, his words are so reliable and so tied to the word of God that none of them fail. None of them are proven untrue. All come to pass. So this barren woman's baby... 
this little boy with a little ephod, this young man who is growing in stature and favor, is now in the timing and plan of God, a full-fledged prophet at just the time when the decline of Eli's house will come to pass. The priestly family is going to be dead by the end of the next chapter. And God has positioned his, his prophet so that his voice will be heard. Do you see the goodness of the sovereignty of God in this? He wants his voice heard. And he knows that the priestly family is on its way out. And so he has been slowly, methodically in the background, raising up and preparing this young man. And now he's ready to actually speak so that God's voice is heard by God's people. Do you think God is concerned about being heard? He is, right? It's what he's doing. It's what he's working in the background for. Why does this matter? It's because now the people of God know I can go to the prophet and know what God says. What God desires for us to know. So what starts as a famine ends in a feast. What starts as rare is now common. And what started as this flickering light is now ablaze in the life of this prophet Samuel. What a transformation. See, that's what this chapter is about. God restoring his word. So you think, well, what does is, what is the restoration of God's word in this chapter have to do with us? You know, I guess... Cool for them. Glad for Israel. You know, great. This passage is not about what you should do in the middle of night, you know, when you hear voices. Um, we ought not to expect kind of the audible call of the prophet that Samuel does, okay? This passage is about God's gracious willingness to meet our desperate need for his word. That's what it's about. God's gracious willingness to meet our desperate need for his word. He's powerful enough to do it, and he desires to commune with his people to make his voice known. Do you remember in the beginning when I asked how God speaks to us and the power of right words at the right time? I'd like to look at two implications of this and two ways that God graciously meets our desperate need for his voice. Number one, God times his gracious words. God times his gracious words. See, God's revealed word always accomplishes its objective. Isn't that amazing? We cannot speak in this way, right? My words do not always accomplish my objective. My wife can testify this a thousand times upon a thousand times, right? But God is able to reveal his word in a way that always gets done what he wants done. This is amazing. And, and in, the, in this text, it's setting it up so that it feels like God, in the nick of time, brings this prophet forward, right? But he's always doing this in his word. He's able to reveal his word to accomplish what he wants. Do you remember when Abraham had the knife raised over his son and God's word broke through and interrupted the killing of the son to show the great sacrifice that was foreshadowed with Jesus? Do you remember when a priest in Israel named Hilkiah finds this thing called the book of the law? It's like a, 
It's so funny. If you read this passage in 2 Kings 22, I mean, it's funny and tragic all at the same time. He's talking, you know, to his supervisor, essentially, and saying, yeah, I was looking through the, the temple, and I found all this stuff. I know there was this book here, and you might want to, you know, take that book and get it up to Josiah and see what he thinks about it, you know. And so his supervisor takes the book and goes up and hands it to Josiah. This is what it says in 2 Kings 22. This is the book of the law, the books of Moses. Like, this is how unfamiliar they were with God's word at that point. It says, in Shaphan, that's a supervisor guy I was talking about, the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. It says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And this little dusty book that was sitting in the corner of the temple now becomes the centerpiece for how God's people are going to live and function. And all the reforms of Josiah follow after that. The timing of God's word. Do you remember Pentecost when God's spirit broke out of those linguistic barriers of the speakers and addressed every people group in their native tongue? Where God's scheduled voice starts this worldwide movement by revealing his word? We can take a post-biblical example in the Reformation. You remember how God used a monk named Martin Luther to challenge the practice of indulgences in the church? Where he's just posting essentially on the church bulletin board, you know, to have an inner church conversation amongst theologians about the biblical nature of these practices. And God takes that and just fans flame into that so that they return to the sources and return to the scriptures themselves. See, God is really good at doing this, at taking his word and and timing it in his sovereignty to breathe life and oxygen so that it just sets fire, a culture. So God times his gracious words. He does this in a corporate sense, and he does this in a personal sense as well to accomplish what he wants. Do you remember that time when you started reading the Bible just in a kind of kind of way and by the end God had spoken directly to your heart through it in a way that was time do you remember the podcast or the sermon or the song that that God used to just change and 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 reorder the the loves of your heart how he did that Do you remember the conversation amongst God's people or the correction or the encouragement that came in the timing of the Lord to accomplish what he wants? God times his word by his grace. This is incredible. God doesn't even just work in the immediate as well. You know, it's not always when you read your Bible, I can immediately apply this in the next five minutes of my life. This is for today. Sometimes he like stores it away. For a time in the future, because he's eternal and he knows what we need when we need it. He'll prepare you for the ways that he knows you need preparation. This is also why we must keep the meaning of scripture intact as we read it. And not bend it to apply to a situation that we feel like is urgent. Because we need to defer to the wisdom of God in his revelation. He knows what we need and he knows when to reveal these things to us. So we must keep the meaning of scripture, the meaning of scripture as we read it. If God times the revelation of his word, then we know 
that he's gracious. When God exposes sin in me by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word or through another person, it means that he's been patient all the time before, right? And right now, there are hundreds of things that are disordered in my heart that he could point out. He could sit me down. All right, get a paper and pen. But in his gracious way, in his fatherly way, he reveals what needs revealing, and he's prepared to convict and to cut like a surgeon and to heal like a savior and and do his work that only he can do. can reveal his word in his time as his will desires. This is a gracious thing that God does for us. What ought this to do in us? How should life be different because of knowing this about God? Well, doesn't this create a hunger in you and I to be near to his voice if we know he's like this? Yes, God is sovereign and he will do what he wills and all those things, but those things don't don't remove the need for us to draw near to him and to be in his word, do they? Shouldn't this cause us to want to be in the path of the way that he gives grace more often so that he can speak to us and shape us? You see how that's a different kind of motivation for reading the Bible than my pastor's on my case about reading my Bible every day, you know? Like knowing that God is like this, knowing that he times his word and he he does that in grace and he aims his word, that makes me want to hear his voice, doesn't it? God, tell me what I need to hear. I want to hear it, right? I want your grace in all of its forms and at all times, I want your grace. It should also heighten our attentiveness to his word when we hear it. This is a question that I had to ask myself. Does God have my attention? When I'm reading his word, when I'm sitting in a sermon, when I'm listening to his word preached, checklist devotions, if you'll find they yield little, (laughs) if that's all that they are, mindless church attendance yields little, maybe we just be prayerful that God would, would up our attention to what he's saying. And maybe in this way, less would be more. Or when we read the word of God, we spend time and we consider. Or when we hear a sermon, we, we apply and think carefully. As opposed to just keep stuffing food in our face and hoping that we digest it. And just being hearers of the word and not doers. It should cause us to trust the conviction and illumination that God gives us. If God times his gracious word to us, then when something is revealed to us or something is taught to us, that means that it's coming from God And and we need to know that and hear that and think about that and ponder that. It adds weight to what we understand from Scripture as we intake the Word of God. It adds weight to when we're gathering in situations like this. It adds weight to the need for Christian fellowship. See, if we're expecting that God times His gracious words to us, then that means that we're hungry to hear His Word in all the ways that he's promised to give it to us. So that's number one. I know that was kind of long. Number one. 
God times his gracious words to us. Number two, God aims his gracious words at us. And God spoke to Samuel about Eli's judgment, and he could have done this for a multitude of reasons. It doesn't really explain why. It could have brought Samuel into the loop. It could have brought confidence to Eli that this was going to happen. It could have added credibility to Samuel as he's established as a prophet. We're not sure why, because the text doesn't say why. But the point is this. I think God's word doesn't always come to us in the form of easy-to-swallow tablets. His word is as diverse as his love to us. And so God's gracious words sometimes come in the form of warning or comfort or encouragement or truth-telling or teaching or granting wisdom or correction or poetry and proverb or story and parable or fact or hyperbole. He talks a lot of different ways because he loves us in a lot of different ways. Recently I've been noticing, I've kind of had this flaw as a dad in terms of being open to conversation with my children after a certain time. It's kind of like when bedtime comes, it's kind of like this sacred thing in our house where it's like, no, you're really going to bed. Like, really? <laughs> and so I just felt myself kind of closed off to the opportunities that, have, that, that are there when our kids are kind of worn down physically and are tired and, and maybe... You actually can see more of what they're struggling with or what they're really at. Or they're just trying to stay up. And they know this with me. They'll like try to bait me with like, Dad, what does the Bible say about this? Or like things that, it's like, tell me about the book you've been reading. You know, I mean, there's softballs like that that you can kind of see and smell a mile away. But it's just been interesting being more, more open to that, that, that I, there are times to say, no, you need to go to bed. That's the best thing for you. And then there's times to sit on their beds and talk with them and hear what, what's going on and, and maybe in a more raw way see what God is, is doing internally in them. And, and as a dad, I need to know that difference and I need to be a steward of that. I was thinking about that in relation to how God gives us his word and how gracious he is to aim at specific things and how wise he is as our father to really give us a kick in the butt when we need it. Man, that helps us. And other times when he just puts us back together. See, God aims his gracious words at us. David Pallison points out that God's love is far better than just unconditional. It's multifaceted. It's nuanced. And we see that as we hear passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, when it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And the reason that God's Word is that way and that capable is because God is that way and God is that capable. And so His voice aims differently for different objectives that he has. So when you open the Bible, you never really know the form of God's love and grace that will come to us, but you know the character of the one who's spoken it. And that's important, that we know that our Father aims his words to us according to his grace. We don't always like the 
the, the dose we get or the word we receive, but we know that it's by his grace that that happens. How should that affect us? How does knowing that God aims his words by grace change the way that we live and think? A couple of quick things here. It, it may show us and expose that we've closed off certain ways for God, for God's grace to come to us. Maybe we're deaf to certain forms of his grace. Like if you open the Bible and you only look for encouragement and comfort in Scripture, what you're doing is saying, I just need a portion of your grace. Not all of it. Maybe we steer clear, clear of certain books in the Bible. Yeah, we've heard a lot of folks, you know, as we've been preaching through a narrative in the Old Testament, like, man, this has been great. This is a less familiar part of Scripture. But there's parts of the Bible that we just kind of, you know, duck around and, oh, whoops, we skipped that one or that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's... There are genres and there are, there are different ways to approach that, and I acknowledge all of that, but all of it is His grace to us. Are we treating Christian fellowship like it's optional is another way that we minimize, a way that we receive God's grace. Let me just encourage you when it comes to God's Word to read it consistently, prayerfully, and willingly. To read it consistently and prayerfully and willingly and see what God does with that. So God times and he aims his gracious word. As we wrap up, um, I want to draw attention to the word, to Jesus, the most definitive and clear word of God because he is God. And God's gracious voice is aimed and timed, and so too was it with our Lord Jesus. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God timed the entrance of his son at the right time and in the fullness of time. And the aim of the Son of God couldn't have been more specific because it had been planned from eternity past to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, God is consistent and how he times and aims his word and the person of Jesus being the, the culmination, being far better than the prophets long ago, as Hebrews 1 tells us. Let me just end with a question that I, maybe you'll talk about over lunch. Um, and that's, do you want to be near the voice of this gracious God? Do you want to be near his voice? Let's pray for God to stir in us over that question. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost for the word, for Jesus Christ, who came at the right time and died in our place and rose again and made it possible to gather together and expect to hear from you and not be consumed. 
And that's what the people of the Old Testament said. How can we hear from the voice of God and expect to live? And Father, we can expect to hear from your voice and expect all the, the, the loving, uh, diverse ways that that comes to your people because of what Jesus has done. And so we exalt him. We magnify him. We, th- we praise him. Not only for his ministry, for his death and for his resurrection, but for uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit, who now speaks uh, and applies uh, your word to us and to our hearts. God, we pray to be teachable. We need your voice. We need it. And in our pride, we can presume so much and think that we know so much. And God, we confess that. We are not sufficient. What we know is not enough. We don't have what it takes. And we need your voice. And we thank you that you have given us a word. You have bothered to bind your word in a book that we have access to. And so, God, I pray for those who are struggling, struggling to to open the Bible and to feel like anything happens. God, I pray that this would just blow fresh wind into their faith to do so, to to seek you by seeking your word. God, they're one and the same in many parts in the scriptures. And so, Father, um, set us on a different course. Put into joint, what's disjointed in us in terms of how we hear your voice. And speak to us, God, through your word. Help us to be a listening people, a people who care more about your thoughts than our own thoughts. And instruct us in this way, God. We thank you that you are so generous to time and aim your gracious word to us. We look forward to speaking with you more. In Jesus' name, amen.